This is an ABC podcast. to the final program of the minefield for a year. This year, of course, being 2020. And we don't always negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life in our final episode by doing a year in review type show. Sometimes we just end with a theme that we think is relevant to the moment. But you can't resist it in a year like this, can you? I mean, of any year that we have even vaguely contemplated doing a look back at the year and a discussion of what the big themes or lessons might be from it. This year has the most compelling case, I think, upon us in an editorial sense. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host as we try to embark upon something quite difficult today, I think, Scott, and that is to try to distill this most unique and I would argue in my lifetime at least most historic of years. Mm. Um, mate, what would what would another candidate be? Maybe the fall of the Soviet Union or something? Well, see, I was actually going to say it is – let me just give two very brief reflections, uh, neither of which is overly well-formed, but I'm going to have a crack anyway. Mm. When our producer, who we want to thank properly later, uh, Sinead Lee, when we were listening back to some of the shows from this year and working out what might be able to play for our summer best-of selection, what was staggering to me, Waleed, is how many shows we did this year that were so partial – that were so constrained by not knowing uh, by uh, constrained by uncertainty. Let me just put it that way: by yeah. not knowing what's going to happen next. There was even one point you'll recall, and Sinead will still not forgive you for this, where you suggested to our listeners that this may well be the last show that we do of this year because we simply didn't know what was going to come next. It was really difficult uh, selecting shows that could be listened to again. Not because they weren't relevant or because we said anything that was necessarily wrong, but because they were so uncertain. We just Mm. didn't know what was around the corner. That, for me, is one of the abiding experiences for me of this year. The other thing is if you think back over some of the great totemic years – of, say, the last four decades. I mean, I think we'd have to talk about 1989. You're right. We'd have to talk about 2001, maybe 2008 with the global financial crisis, 2016 with the election of Donald Trump and Brexit. These are all years, if you think about it, where we're still trying to understand what those years meant, what they actually changed, what they consolidated. And for me, one of the great opportunities, I think, that doing this show the way that we're doing it allows us or permits us is, okay, we have haven't got complete hindsight. To some extent, we're still in the middle of things. But I think we are in a position and the condition of active COVID cases in New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland being what they are, it feels like we've got a degree of respite, haven't we, where we can maybe do a little bit of synthetic work. What does this mean? What does it tell us about ourselves, about history, about the human condition, about the quality and the character of our common life. So for me, this is one of those years, you're right, where we're going to try to work out what on earth it meant for a long time to come. Right. But I wouldn't want to lean too heavily into local COVID cases because these are global stories and it's been a global year in in a lot of ways. So I think we've done okay. We we actually did something we rarely do before a show and that is have a conversation. Um, (laughs) And in the course of doing that, we we boiled the year down to... You can't. What? I mean, what do we just disclose to our listeners now that usually about five minutes before the show begins, we, hey, Waleed, what do you want to talk about? Oh, I don't know. What do you want to talk about? And well, then we kind of go from there. You, you say that like I'm here five minutes before the show. <laughs> 
Um, I, so I think we've done well, though, because in that conversation, we managed, I think, to distill the year down into four events, if you like. Yeah. Some of those events have multiple, like, sublims or whatever, but there's four events that elicit three grand themes. And as much as anything else, I'm proud of that. I feel like we could just say what they are and then I can just go, I feel like the work's done. Uh, but it's the neatest way to do it. So should I maybe detail them? Or not detail them, yes, list please. them? Okay. So the four events that we've decided characterise 2020, there will be others. We know that, by the way. These are just the four that we think distill the year best for us. Bushfires, of course, in Australia, but elsewhere as well, we should point mm. out. COVID-19, which suggests itself, not just in Australia but all over the world and into 2021, clearly. We've added the killing of George Floyd hmm. to that, which I do with some hesitation because it's an American event and I think we can become very American-focused in this, but there's yep. no doubting it's also a global event hmm. uh, in the way that it played out and a local event to us in Australia in the way that it played out. Hmm. And then, again, um, reluctantly, because it's an American event but a global one, is the US presidential election, the end of the Trump presidency, but the full revelation really, I think, of the extent of America's political divisions. There are four events, and we've decided that what they all elicit, some more than others, but I think certainly all of them in concert, are three basic ideas, three big themes. One is the idea of interdependency, um, our reliance on the environment, the contingency of our condition, all of those sorts of things that tell us that we are not in control in the way that we thought, hmm. like to think we are. Secondly, the idea of inequality, but more than that, I think a bigger idea is just injustice and the way that it shows up in our lives and the problems that it creates for us. And then thirdly, I think for me, actually, perhaps even most interestingly, is trust in institutions. Actually, you could broaden that. We could say trust. And institutions yep. are a big part of that but also trust in each other as individuals, as citizens, as people in a shared condition or a shared polity or, or whatever. And that trust can be the lack of trust or actually the quite surprising presence of that trust. Mm. And I think that those things taken together define our year. So that's our menu. By my reckoning, we've got about 18 and a half minutes to try to get through it uh, before the podcast starts where we'll embellish them further. Where do you want to start? Well, can I just, at the risk of departing from the script a little bit, can I just point out the importance of the air in everything that you've just talked about? I don't want to seem too kind of weird about this, but if you just think about it for a moment, it seems to me that there's no way of telling the story of or of fully morally reckoning with the horror of the bushfires that began the year that shrouded southeast of Australia in this thick, suffocating cloud of either uh, smoke or the kind of horrible apocalyptic red valence um, that really, I mean, continues. I, uh, I still have dreams about it. There was something kind of nightmarish about that. But it's been the intensification of our corruption of the air we breathe that cost Fifteen. So it cost eleven million hectares to be burnt, and three billion animals either to be immolated or displaced. This is a year in which a virus has killed one and a half million people, a death, a horrible death, 
by suffocation, by the inability to breathe. This is a year where the suffocation of a 46-year-old black man provoked a worldwide reckoning with the fact that even though we breathe the same air, we don't breathe that air equally. There's something about the words, I can't breathe, that resonates, I think, across so many levels. And it makes us reflect, I think, on the fact that air isn't just something we breathe, it's something we share. We have spent this year hyper-conscious, I think, of not breathing one another's air, or fearful that another person's air is going to deprive us of breath, or of not being so little concern about another person being unable to breathe because that person doesn't breathe the same air as we do. That, I think, is part of the logic, part of the legacy of racism. We don't share this space in common. But also air as the medium, Waleed, that allows us to hear one another, to see one another, to recognize one another's moral intensity. And I think that doesn't just cut across the problem of racism and racial contempt. But, you know, there's a good reason, I think, that the media used to be called the airwaves. Um, what we see increasingly, I think, in advanced democracies across the West is that we simply do not communicate with one another. One another's moral intensity doesn't register to one another. We, we draw in our own discrete air shared with other people. So I think for me, what all four of these great crises, and I think you're absolutely right in identifying the three themes that come out of them, but what I think they have beneath all of them is this recognition, yes, of our finitude, Yes, of our, of our fragility as human beings, that we are not in control. But more than anything else, we have given scant moral attention to the space that we have in common, to the medium in which we breathe and breathe with others, and the medium in which we try to communicate and hear one another's uh, moral intensity and passion and their own experiences of injustice and moral degradation. And then here, others, of course, who are on the opposite side of a particular ideological or moral spectrum. So for me, Waleed, this has been the year that's been a great reckoning of the decrepitude into which we've allowed our life in common to fall and to sink right. into. And now, that's not to say I think there haven't been moments of great hopefulness. By God, there have been. But for me, this is the reckoning of our shared space in common, the air we breathe all together. I was going to say, I think you're talking less about air than you are about the commons and about common life and commonality. I think the air is a good metaphor for it. Um, but it's probably a metaphor I'd want to push a little bit further because the air is also what is enjoyed not just by humans, but by these other non-human animals that enjoy that, that are part of what might be called a kind of conspiracy of breathers, um, where we rely upon one another for our health, our well-being, but also for the possibility of moral community. So let's begin with that first theme of interdependency and contingency of, of mm. a lack of control. To me, and you know, I, I've said this about COVID, but maybe we can actually say this about all of 2020. I, I've regarded it as like the great audit it's like ink in a piece of pottery or something. It reveals all of the cracks. Um, and it's shown, I mean, you talk about a sense of what's decrepit, what's decayed. It's revealed all of that because of the stress that's been put upon us. But more than that, it's revealed the the false nature of our mythology of self-reliance, of, of independence. I've spoken a bit about that, maybe even a lot about that, in the context of COVID-19 
I think it's also true in the case of the bushfires. Yeah. They're the most obvious ones, and I'm interested to see whether or not you think it also shows up in the George Floyd and the US presidential cases. But I, to me, it's probably the most profound shock to our psychological system, if you like, this idea that we do not have a right... So that we've been deluding ourselves by thinking that we're in charge of anything. The thing that was so shocking about the bushfires and just the extremity of the images that we saw of seeing people moved onto boats in more or less um, suburban Melbourne. Mm. Like, I mean, it's not really, but it kind of is. That to me, it's kind of like you want an image that captures your lack of control. Mm. Here it is. Do something about this. And then all that beneath a blood red sky just to make, just to sort of reinforce the moral point even more strongly. Yeah, it's a powerful image because it's a subversion of everything that's normal. Hmm. The sky doesn't look the same. The people are not in the situation they should be in. Uh, it was, I was overseas at the time, but was it New Year's Eve that this happened? Something like yep. that. It's the wrong time for something like this to be happening. In other words, normal service is not resuming. There is no normal service here. And it's interesting we talk about that word normal because has that word been one of the most used words in the context of COVID-19? When will things return to normal? Hmm. When can we get back to normality? Can we get a vaccine so we can go back to normal? And even people, I think, who are working on these vaccines will tell us, you're not going back to normal. <laughs> these things cannot change. Maybe that's the connection with the George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter stuff. Can there be a normality after this moment? Would even the election of Joe Biden as president and the ending of the Trump administration, does that return normality? Or has something actually irrevocably changed now within the American body politic? And perhaps that as an echo of what's happening within democratic society more generally. I'll get you to respond in a sec, but I need to do the reset. You're listening to The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. But catch us anytime on the ABC Listen app or subscribe to our podcast, if you like, where we keep going past the end of the radio show. And we will do that today. No guests today. Scott and I uh, are just uh, going through our reflections on 2020 just between us. We don't have any room for anybody else in our reflections on this year. So, Scott, I, I, that, that's kind of my best hashing out of the interdependency yeah side of it. We can go into more detail, of course, but do you have anything you want to add to that? Indeed, I do. Look, I think that's a wonderful way of putting it. It is striking. If you follow this theme of interdependence and on the illusion, if you like, of normality, if you follow that through each one of these seismic events, then you see that in each case, we are looking for that silver bullet, aren't we? We're looking for that thing, which once it is accomplished, the crisis, if you like, will be averted. In the case of COVID-19, that's pretty obvious. That's a vaccine. And so much of the impatience with which we've been uh, eagerly anticipating the return to something like normality has really been hung on the prospect of a vaccine. We did a show precisely about this. What if this is life for some time? Do we have the internal resources? Um, I think sometimes some of the mitigation measures or signals or symbols of international cooperation have sometimes, uh, surrounding climate change, have sometimes been invested with a degree of popular longing or anticipation that sees this as ultimately being the kind of silver bullet and we're going to look back at this moment as the point at which things really began to change. This is less the case, I think, with Black Lives Matter because everything about that is about our complicity in long-term in some respects, almost unaddressable injustice. Unaddressable. I, think, I think that's the same with the COVID-19 and especially the bushfires, right? 
Oh no! Look, look, I, I think you're right. I'm, I'm just trying to talk about this in terms of sort of public perception more than more uh, than anything else. But I think really, Black Lives Matter has been the one thing where we can't say if we do this, then things will have changed. I think there's a debt that has to be paid, and the weight of that debt filters through pretty much everything we do if we want to take this morally seriously. Certainly the case with the election of Joe Biden. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me that after, what, two, three days of relative euphoria, already things have begun to sink back into, my God, what does the next two years, in fact, look like, not just mm-hmm. in terms of the partisan divide. But can I just say, Waleed, that while, while I think there is something beyond anyone's control or beyond the scope of any one thing to fix the problem. I've also been greatly heartened by the moral agency that's been displayed, that's been revealed, that's been uncovered at various points of this year. For instance, the fact that uh, governments around the world have shut down things that we used to regard as being the inescapable realities of modern life, from freedom of movement to freedom of consumption to the expectation of particular lifestyles to international flights, to, you know, go down the list, all the things that we've been told we would have to curtail if there was going to be some serious economic and political reckoning with climate change, for instance. All of these things were dealt with in a moment, and people across the world, to a large extent, displayed a remarkable degree, not just of self-restraint, but also what can only be described, I think, as moral agency, that one person's behavior really does matter in terms of the system as a whole. And to my mind, while we've had this contingency, infinitude, and interdependency revealed, I think we've also been reminded the importance of everyday moral agency. So, can I go further than that? Yeah, moral agency. I would say moral seriousness. Okay, good. So, yes, that's right. So, I think that's what, and I suppose this gets us to the third of the themes that we outlined at the start, and that is the idea of trust, and trust in institutions, trust in each other, etc., it's been a great year for government and even for things like uh, traditional media, right? So yeah, trust in traditional right. media, traditional news sources has gone up. I know a lot of conspiracy theories and distrust of those things have flourished as well. I get that. Um, and to some extent, that's just an inevitable consequence of the level of fracture that we have now in our informational landscape and in what we once called our society. But the fact that traditional institutions have gone up in the estimation of the public generally, at least to the extent that we can believe polling on it, politicians, leaders themselves, political culture, um, traditional news organisations, that is partly just the turn towards that which is familiar and securitising in a crisis. But is it not also a reflection of the fact that those institutions for the first time in a long time began to get morally serious? Mm. So... You can have all kinds of arguments about, you know, whether government decisions on lockdowns were um, necessary or, you know, are worthy of criticism and so on. Those arguments can exist at the micro level. But at the, at the meta level, the overarching under- perception of these things is the fact that governments did things that they hated. I mean, no government wants to kill its own economy. I think we can take mm. that, unless you buy into the wildest of conspiracy theories. I think you can take that as a given. 
they don't want to kill their own economy, but they felt they did what they felt they had to do. They spoke to us as grown-ups and said, this mm. is going to be hard. Bad things are going to happen. It is inescapable. They're, like Costs will be borne here. We've never heard that in politics before, like for ages. Everyone has to be a winner in politics. Now, no, we cannot win here. The countries that did well with COVID-19 were the ones that submitted before it, not the ones that chose to fight it or deny it in the case of what we pick your poison, United States, Brazil, the UK. This is revealing something, that the trust that flows to each other and to institutions follows the moral seriousness that is there. But simultaneously, it's the lack of moral seriousness, isn't it, on George Floyd or everything that led up to George Floyd? Yeah. On the bushfires, everything that's led up to that. That has put us in a position of insoluble long-term problems, right? It's the unsustainability of the levels of injustice or inequality. It's the unsustainability of our psychology our mythology of conquering the environment rather than working with it or recognising our dependence upon it. That is the lack of moral seriousness that's put us in these conundrums. Maybe the, uh, the theme that sits above our themes is the theme of moral seriousness. Well, Ed, I think that is exactly, exactly right. And the way that you even described this towards the beginning as being the great audit, or if you like, the debts that we have been accruing for a long time, the things that we have neglected are now imposing themselves upon our consciousness, are now demanding a degree of recognition. Um, I think that's, that's pitch perfect. I guess I'm somewhat wary, not because I'm disagreeing, but because I'm just trying to sort of reflect this, reflect on what this all means for ordinary time. Um, I guess I'm somewhat wary, though. If we, as democratic subjects... If state and federal governments, if the media, when it, quote unquote, really mattered, we were able to pull things together. Then why didn't we before? Yeah. And unfortunately, what that suggests is that there are an awful lot of things that we have chosen to gamify or that we have decided to exploit Or that simply haven't imposed themselves strongly enough on our moral attention to take seriously. And for me, that begins to enact a form of judgment upon the way that we live generally, which I find deeply, deeply disconcerting. Well, what a cheery note on which to end the broadcast here. We'll unpack all that in the podcast. I think you're right. I think that is one of the big lessons from this too. Um, but on a on the theme of debts falling due, we are indebted to a lot of people, um, Scott, in getting this to air before we sign off uh, on the airwaves at least um, for the year. There are a lot of people we should thank. Um, do you want to start this or do you want me to start this? I'll tell you what, why don't I do the Melbourne folks and you can do the Brisbane folks. <laughs> is that a nice little inversion? All right. Don't forget Perth, but sure. Uh, d- yes, I won't forget Perth. So, so look, there are people across the country who help this to happen, especially in COVID-affected circumstances. That group of people has expanded this year. Paul Penton, Carrie Dell, Selwyn Cousins, Matthew Crawford, Angie Grant, Chrissy Miltidiadu, 
uh, Richard Gervin, Melissa May, and the people who look after booking studios in Melbourne. You've all been wonderful. You've all helped us out, as has David LeMay in Perth, who gets our podcast ready to go out on the podcast stream each week. That's got to be about the hardest thing. And thanks to Absolutely. half the ABC who turned up at my house one day to try to figure out how I could broadcast <laughs> from home. That was remarkable. Um, yeah, as the pandemic was about to descend. Uh, in Brisbane, though, um, and Scott would see these people regularly, or at least he would have, but for COVID, I imagine. Uh, David White, Steve Fieldhouse, Sai Rawalui and Costa Zuliu. Um, and also the wonderful crew at MCR who basically get this whole thing out. When we have an MCR problem, we have a very big problem. But we cannot uh, leave without mentioning Sinead Scott. And I know you obviously spend a lot more time with her than me because you're in the same city as her. Is there anything you want to say? Look, uh, Sinead is a force of nature. She is our most wonderful scold. She is our <laughs> conscience. Uh, without her, the show just wouldn't be possible. So a special thanks to Sinead for putting up with all of our bad behavior throughout the year and for making the show with What us. I love is that even in us thanking her, she's yelling at us, telling us time to wrap. <laughs> That's right. That's Because right. <laughs> we've gone very close to overtime. We are about to end. We've got to time this out to the second. We'll see you in the podcast. Thank you to you for listening to us on the minefield throughout the year. And of course, all our guests that have joined us throughout the year, they have made the show what it is. We will see you next year with any luck. I will see you now on the podcast. Podcast. And of course, the best of the minefield for 2020 will be coming towards you all throughout summer. Thanks very much for all your company, and we'll see you soon. I really like how we're doing this, Willie. This this feels this feels right. And I guess I should also say, in the middle of all those thanks that we gave, I didn't thank you for the moral clarity that you being prepared for the last six years to join me in conversation each week has brought to the way that I think about things. Uh, I cannot imagine a more unrelenting and unfailingly honest companion in dialogue. Um, And I think just the way that you framed some of the challenges that we've had this year and speaking about it in terms of moral seriousness rather than simply moral agency. That for me just really brought this brought this home. There's something uh, unusual, something therapeutic and something morally enriching about having to sit under your unrelenting uh, gaze that is both terrifying <laughs> but has been <laughs> but has been Hey, of the two of enriching. us, you're the only one that's interrogated the other. Just done a whole show, basically interrogating them. So that I, is true. Yeah. So let's not make it you quivering beneath my gaze. Thank you very much. I do though. Um, I, I will do. say the the sentiment is entirely shared, and uh, anyone who knows anything about me uh, has paid attention to anything I've written probably over the past well six years. I guess would know you are easily among the the greatest intellectual influences on me. I think you've intuited at the very least that you've managed to win me over on a couple of things long term. I will never give you credit for that. No, it's um, fine. But I suppose I just did. Damn, you got me again. But I'll know. I'll know when you're plagiarizing some of my ideas (laughs) in some of the things you've written. I'll and and I will go to my grave secure and happy in that knowledge. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, we'll all know that I also did it better. Anyway, the point is that we are halfway through our reflections on 2020, and now that we're in the podcast part of the show and we can stretch our legs a little bit. I I wonder if it might be worth getting a little bit more granular about these things. Yeah, please. Uh, That's okay. So uh, possibly the most interesting theme or or part of the interdependency element of this, I suppose it meets the inequality stuff as well. 
was the idea of in COVID-19 of us being in it together. Hmm. And I don't know where you fall on this, whether you see this as a, a sort of hackneyed phrase, kind of cliche that means nothing, that covers up the substantive ways in which we are not in this together because, for example, early doors in the United States, rich people were able to get COVID tests and poor people weren't. Yeah. Um, the way that the toll of everything from lockdowns to the disease itself seemed to fall disproportionately on non-white populations yep. within particularly white majority countries, so in the, the UK, the United States, the way that it fell differently upon poor people. So there was a class mm. uh, analysis to this as well. I don't know whether you fall into that camp of saying, what is this in it together tosh? Or the other camp, which I'll confess is my camp, which is we were all in this together, whether you wanted to be or not, and whether you acknowledged it or not, just by simple physics and biology, just by virtue of the fact that someone getting the disease, getting the virus, and then spreading it to somebody else caused mayhem for people all over the place. Not equally, but in some cases, but still quite disastrously for many people. That there were those who would have enjoyed every privilege in what we would call normal life, who endured an immense hardship sometimes because of the very inequalities that they may have profited from, whether it be in the form of insecure labour or, or whatever, that meant that, you know, in a place like Melbourne, I had to spend much of the year in lockdown, for example. I've given this example before. If you were running a business um, that was relying on insecure work in order to make it profitable or in order to maximise its profitability, um, that didn't mean that you didn't have to close when the lockdowns happened because there were people who were in insecure work environments that went to work when they were sick because they felt they had no choice, for example. Hmm. And it's that level, it's where that, that intersection of injustice and inequality meets our interconnectedness, our interdependency, that I think has been really fascinating throughout the year. And while I suspect it won't change very much long term, I think it probably has the most potential to change something long term because it really does go to the heart of the vulnerabilities that this sort of system that we've created has or has. Yeah, look, I'm going to confess that I feel genuinely, genuinely split on this. Um, I think the political rhetoric, the public rhetoric, let's put it that way, the public rhetoric of we're in this together I think is vital. I think there's no alternative to that. That is the only message that can be conveyed publicly, which is a way of saying, if you feel that you're having to bear a sacrifice, be assured that others are bearing a sacrifice too. That mightn't be proportionate. That might be highly discriminatory, but we all are having to sacrifice together. And even further to that, if you behave badly, that's going to have knock-on effects to others. In other words, it, we're all in this together is a way of registering a degree of moral agency. Um, I do find it astonishing, though, Waleed, and I think you gestured in this direction at the very beginning of our discussion, that what COVID-19 in particular has revealed is a number of debts or inequities or injustices that have been allowed to accrue to accrue over an extended period of time. So, for instance, the fact that COVID-19 disproportionately kills those who have historically been the subject of discriminatory laws and policing. There's a kind of cruel, there's a doubling of the cruelty of the injustice. Are you saying they're connected? 
I'm not I saying how much of that is just biological. Oh, no, I don't think... I wouldn't want to assign it to biology. I don't know that that's right, though. So I, I'm not, I, I don't have a side... Because I've heard this idea that it's, there's, it's not merely social vulnerability, it's medical as well. Uh, yes, but that's also because year-on-year year accruing of health difficulties, for instance... Uh, or of of either poor housing, poor sanitation, uh, exposed and v- highly vulnerable jobs, uh, not vulnerable in terms of risking unemployment, but in terms of exposure to other people, um, poor or no uh, fresh food being available, and therefore sort of chronic or endemic health difficulties that make that make certain populations, certain portions of the population particularly exposed. There is a kind of cruelty about that, I think, that means that while there mightn't be a causal connection between these things, it's more than just coincidence. There is a compounding of injustice, I think, that's taking place here. Yeah, I'm not going to dispute that element of it. I think there's definitely okay. a compounding. Um, but, uh, but just going back to your idea that we're all in it together, but of course, we're not all in it together. Um, you know, there is... One of the things that I'm very, very proud of, and this is one of the first things we talked about when we began talking about COVID-19... I was worried that we as a society who I think chronically undervalue and treat old life as being fundamentally disposable, I was desperately, desperately worried that for the sake of the economy, we were going to sacrifice those who are most vulnerable on the altar of our desire to get things back to normal. Can I say, Waleed, I have been stunned by the way, that most societies around the world have gone to remarkable lengths to protect those who are most vulnerable at the expense of those who are most prepared to bear the sacrifice of shutting down the economy. I mean, I think some of the things that have come out over the course of this year about aged care facilities, especially, I should say, for-profit aged care facilities – that hangs like an albatross around all of our necks. That's something that we should be ashamed of. And if there's anything that's going to be redressed after this year, it really does need to be that. It seems to me that there are certain sectors of our common life, there are certain vocations that we simply cannot entrust to for-profit companies. And it strikes me that the care of the elderly and those who are in advanced stages uh, of certain chronic debilities or dementia, that cannot be entrusted to for care service providers. That all being said, isn't it kind of remarkable the extent to which we have decided as a society to care for those who, in some people's estimations, wouldn't really be quote unquote missed if they fell victim? To COVID-19 in pure economic or efficiency terms? I do find that remarkable. But I I, I could see a cynical counter-argument to it, which is that I saw this rebuttal a lot when people sort of gestured towards this idea that why are we making all these sacrifices? Is it really worth it? Hmm. And the argument was oh, but it doesn't just affect old people. Young people will die too. There's the question of long COVID and the the detrimental health effects to people who don't die, um, but who get it and six or months Or even just later. overloading the health system, for instance. Yeah, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. 
So I guess what I'm saying is while I am inclined towards the way you've just framed it, there is an alternative framing of it, which is to say that um, it wasn't just – because we were capable of making it not just about the elderly, then we were capable of making that kind of sacrifice. There's also the little detail that I think about a bit without really being able to settle on an analysis of, but that is that those who were more inclined to breach social distancing or COVID restrictions or whatever – tended to be younger people. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that might be a kind of biological invincibility, if you like, although that's clearly <laughs> too strong a word because young people did die, but a sense of that anyway. Yeah. Part of that might a, be... A preparedness to embrace risky behaviour. Can we, well, can we just put it in that kind of general way? There's definitely <laughs> that. Is any of it a lack of intergenerational solidarity, do you think? Hmm. What a wonderful question. Do you want to answer it or is it one of those questions you just ask and don't answer? I don't want to answer it, but let me just gesture towards an answer by putting in one other factor here. When discussions were being had about whether getting the economy going again was worth the cost of the lives of some at the older end of the age spectrum. One of the more remarkable responses that I heard was thinking about this in terms of uh, the economy or in terms of efficiency or social productivity. Okay. But think about the loss to children of grandparents. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right about the lack of that kind of intergenerational awareness. I think one of the things we really need to guard against is a growing sentiment that I'm picking up year on year on year, that those who are now retired, living in their prohibitively expensive houses, not because when they bought them they were prohibitively expensive, but because of where they now live and the way that real estate has gone up, having lived the way that they wanted to, polluting the environment with abandon. There's another way I think this lack of intergenerational solidarity is playing out, and that's with intergenerational resentment. Uh, If they've had their time, it's time they pay their dues. So I come at this from the opposite side, though. Hmm. I think the lack of intergenerational, what did you call it? Solidarity? No, that's what I called it. Anyway, whatever. Resentment. resentment. Intergenerational resentment. I think that intergenerational resentment um, and the fracturing of that solidarity has flowed mostly in the opposite direction, hasn't it? I mean, this is now we're doing a different show, so I'm wary of going into this too much. But Mm. where's the intergenerational solidarity on climate change? Where's the intergenerational solidarity on the housing market? Uh, you know, I think I think young people have a very plausible claim to being completely left out and undermined in the political process at the expense of older generations on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You saw what happened in the last election the minute franking credits came into view. Yep. Right? So I'm not prepared to go all the way with you on that analysis. But I think what we can agree is that the, one of the things the audit has turned up, uh, one of the results has turned up, is that there are intergenerational problems. Um, and that there, there are intergenerational inequities and perhaps even some intergenerational um, resentments that 
need to be handled. The one thing, uh, I think, to end the year, I'm very interested in the role of institutions here. Hmm. The total collapse in trust of institutions in the UK, particularly after the Dominic Cummings um, Yeah. Yeah. Scandal. That that is so this is the man who is as a senior advisor to Boris Johnson, one of the people responsible for coming up with the COVID rules, ends up breaching them and then ends up being exonerated by Boris Johnson as mm. a result. He's gone now, but for a different thing. And it, I've got friends in the UK I've spoken to about this, and for them it, it's that very moment that coming up with any meaningful response to COVID became impossible. Because no one any longer took government directives on that seriously. They saw them as optional. If the government mm. doesn't even believe in this stuff, why should we? And Which probably reflects a kind of political cynicism that the rule apply to other the rules apply to others. But there is another group. Uh, actually, Zadie Smith, one of my favorite novelists, referred to this uh, particular incident involving Dominic Cummings uh, as Cummings being a super spreader of a virus, but that virus is the virus of contempt. Yeah. Uh, what concerns you simply doesn't matter to us. Yes. And the people who write the rules don't need to abide by them. That's right. COVID in the end probably costs Donald Trump the presidency. I think he wins that election, but for COVID. He doesn't lose mm. it by much. The Democrats don't have a great election. We've discussed that. The polarization is really thorough and it's very stubborn. But in the end, it probably tilts because he mishandles the pandemic so badly, which is a way of saying there was a lack of trust in his institution, mm-hmm. even if only at the margins, margins. And he's completely damaged the trust in institutions in the United States by waging war on them for however long. He's not the first to do it. He's perhaps the most effective to do it. The fact that someone like Anthony Fauci can become such a politicised figure yeah. I think speaks to that, and that masks can become a political issue, speaks to that. Mm. Mm. Contrast, happily, Australia, where institutions have done remarkably well out of this. Maybe it's short term. I take your point earlier about um, why weren't they able to do this earlier? <laughs> why weren't they able to do this absent a pandemic? But maybe there's something, surveying the field evidence from other countries around the world, maybe there is something in the fact that when the chips were down, they were still capable of doing it. And, you know, I think that there's something to be celebrated there because one thing that we've learned is that while institutions need to be scrutinised and there needs to be transparency and all of that, I'm not denying any of that, a society becomes, I think, truly lost when it no longer trusts those institutions Mm. because it has nothing to replace them with. And then it really, really falls apart even when it matters, even when it's gotten really, really serious. You can reach a point where you are capable Oh, sorry, incapable of responding even in the most extreme circumstances. Yeah. Look, uh, let me just say a hearty here here to everything you just said. I think that's exactly right. I think we do need to recognize the extent to which trust in institutions isn't just trust in institutions, but there's a kind of feedback loop. It, 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 it increases or enhances our capacity to trust in general rather than just in particular institutions. The fact that we were willing to, quote unquote, obey fairly harsh directives, I think is incredibly Mm. incredibly ennobling to us all. Um, you're not going to hear any argument from me, Walid, about the importance of institutions. Let me, if, if you don't mind, though, can I end on a non-institutional note? Yep. Um, I did want to talk about moral agency quite deliberately because I do think while there are systemic and structural injustices and addressing those injustices really do matter and it's something that's both beyond and it's a task for us all, 
while I think that part of the COVID response, it had to be coordinated or else it just wasn't going to work. One, you know, a single person being extra, extra careful and fastidious was never going to solve this particular thing. Um, it does strike me, and I've had John Dewey kind of rumbling through my mind for a lot of this year about everything that is best and most virtuous in democracy, he says, is reaffirmed and practiced in day-to-day interactions. Uh, democracy lives in the way that we speak to one another and listen to one another. I was deeply, deeply moved, even though they were a bit controversial at the time for on public health grounds, I was deeply moved by the vision of people in masks side by side taking quite possibly their health in their hands and in many cases enacting forms of civil disobedience to march in favor of black lives. There is something about the vision of those interactions, about the ability to breathe the same air and to allow the pain of one to register in the moral energies of another. The importance of doing things in a manner that reflects a degree of personal moral seriousness, of trying to build up our capacity to hear one another and trust one another through a commitment to daily interactions and daily attendance to the moral energies that another person is trying to exhibit or to communicate. These all seem to me, Waleed, this is vital for climate change, being able to listen to one another and to hear the cries of pain of others. This, of course, has to do with COVID-19, the ability to recognize the inherent dignity of one another's lives. This has to do with answering the cries of injustice that have now built up, it seems to me, an unrepayable debt, but a debt we have to begin paying down seriously. And, of course, this has to do with overcoming this deep and seemingly incommensurable political divide. It begins, it has to begin, surely, with a recommitment to the quotidian, the everyday virtues of democratic moral attendance to one another. It seems to me if there's anything that we've learned this year, it's we've learned that those daily interactions, those personal encounters, those forms of registering one another's dignity, humanness, uh, and moral investment, um, this is what makes, I think, for justice in the long term. It's amazing, isn't it? We did a year in review show last year that was about 2019, the year that nothing mattered. (laughs) <laughs> and I think we've ended up with 2020, the year that everything matters. <laughs> everything matters. <laughs> Amazing. It's a good way to end. Thank you so much for the year that you've given us, Scott. We're going to say thanks to Sinead again because she's grumpy again because we've gone too long. and It's a weekly ritual, but the thanks isn't, so we should thank her more. And thank you very much, Sinead, for indulging us. Um, shall we see you next year or perhaps even next week in absentia? Yeah, you should all tune in next week. We are revisiting some of the shows that we loved from this year. Next week, we're going back to our Deadly Sins or Ordinary Vices series. We're talking about Pride, which remains one of my favorite shows that we did this year. I always like it when we kind of step out of the news cycle, but that was a particularly good show. We've got some other good things coming up. Um, I, I should also say... You know, there are a few kind of interesting things that are afoot for the minefield for next year. So enjoy summer and do join us again for our first live show of the year at the end of January. It should be a pretty interesting one. Sounds like I still have a job. Woohoo! <laughs> You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.